In today's episode, we spoke to Carrie Johnson about her nephew Michael's story. Before we begin, we do want to issue a trigger warning for discussions of animal abuse and murder. We understand that these topics can be difficult to hear, and we want to ensure that everyone listening feels safe and supported. As always, we appreciate your support and thank you for tuning in. Here's the episode. Carrie, I just gave a brief overview of the case that has affected you to my co-host here. Would you like to um, explain to them what happened in your life? Sure. Um, November 10th, 2009, um, my nephew was home working on a, working on a, his computer. I think he was playing some games when a couple of classmates came over and I guess they went to the back, the backyard to hang out. He obviously was tricked to go into the backyard because he trusted these, these classmates. And it turned out that they had a signal between each other. This was Randy Thompson and Jay Williams. And when they gave that signal to each other, Jay Williams tackled Michael and um, held him down. And then they began stabbing him. How old, how old were they? Jay Williams was 15. Randy Thompson was 16. And Michael had turned 15 um, less than a month before that happened. And were they the only ones home at that time? So what what happened was Michael's mom and his grandmother, it was only about five Uh o'clock. His mom and his grandmother went shopping and Jay Williams and Randy Thompson were actually waiting across the street for the family to leave. And so when his mother and grandmother left to go shopping, that's when they came and knocked on the door. Wow. And then um, come to find out that they had actually been planning to kill somebody for a month. Um, These two had a history of torturing and killing animals. And um, Jay Williams, in his police interview, admitted that when they finally got bored with torturing and killing animals, they decided on a human victim. And the reason that they chose Michael rather than a stranger was because with a stranger, they wouldn't know whether or not the person had a weapon or, or would be able to fight back. But if they chose Michael, you know, they knew that they could double team him and that that he would actually trust them enough to let them in. So they used his trust against him. That's awful. Awful. But it sounds like uh, they had a plan, but not a good plan. What they did? What what did they have any plan for after? I thought what were they caught right away? They were they were brought in the next morning because so what happened is they had been talking about this at school and then you know teenagers being the way they are they kind of blew it off. Nobody thought that this was that this was real. So they'd been talking about it at school. And I guess when um, when Jay Williams and Randy Thompson were discussing it, um, Michael walked by. So one of the guys, one of the guys they were talking to said, well, who are you going to do this to? And they kind of motioned at Michael. Well, the guy blew it off, you know, thinking that they're just tough talking. Oh, yeah. Well, 
the next morning it was already on the news that a um that a teenager in this side of town had been murdered in his backyard and some of the kids at school were noticing that michael was gone he wasn't in class mm-hmm. and so they put two and two together um the one who who they had pointed michael out to called his dad um, detectives were at school and they kind of started piecing things together. So they were actually arrested the next day. They weren't arrested at school, but they were brought in for questioning and that led to an arrest. And then come to find out, I mean, it, they found the evidence at Randy Thompson's house pretty quickly. Um, they had a notebook where they had um, written out the kind of tools that, you know, the, weapons that they were going to use, um, how they were, the clothing that they were going to use. Um, Why was the a lot clothing? of the things that actually that they said that they were going to do was documented on a paper that was left in Randy Thompson's backpack. So wow. whether or not they had a plan for afterwards, I don't know if they even got that far. What, what was significant about the clothing? I mean, um the clothing came from randy thompson's house um it was you know hoodies jeans duct taping shoes that kind of thing wow and um that was found within i want to say 48 hours because they dumped it in a in a wood i don't want to call it a wooded area behind some a shopping center and um that was found right away and it had DNA, where DNA evidence on the collars and then blood evidence on the um, both wrists. It sounds deranged. Mm-hmm. It, it is. And, you know, as a uh, family to the victim, it must have come out of absolutely nowhere and being unreal. Because obviously your nephew was not in any kind of risk group or anything. No. Yeah, you can't no, plan for that. It, you can't foresee something like that happening. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. No, it was absolutely shocking. Um, even talking about it now, it feels like I'm talking about something that that happened to somebody else. It um, sounds like something from a horror film. Mm-hmm. It does. You know, especially uh, learning that their whole reason for doing it was because these two kids considered um, themselves Satanists and they wanted to seal their bond as Satan's sons with a murder. And it sounds, I mean, hearing myself say it, Mm -hmm. it sounds, it sounds mythical. You know, it sounds like something that is just not real. You see it on TV and it's, and it's not real, but it's actually a part of our lives. Well, to me, Jay Williams and Randy Thompson sound like future serial killers. Yes. Absolutely. 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 Throughout this whole Are they thing, still in jail today? They are. They were sentenced to 26 to life, but due to a new bill, SB 1391, it made it so that in California, nobody under the age of 16 could be tried as an adult. So Jay Williams is going to be released within the next year or two. Next year or two? Yeah. That's scary. Wow. That is. 
Carrie, this this one is really, really difficult for me because I don't believe that kids should be charged at, tried as adults. However, this is a case that is totally different because of the animal cruelty and mm -hmm. the, you know the future serial killer characteristics. To me, that makes it different. But I do kind of agree with the bill, but yet. Again, like I said, this with with these guys, you know that they're going to do it again. Yeah. And that's the thing is I can totally understand the heart of the bill. I can I can understand, you know, ch children, teenagers are not the same as adults. They're the front of their brain isn't fully developed. And I totally get where they're coming from. Um, the problem that I have is a blanket Senate bill that treats everyone the same. Exactly. They're treating, you know, um, teenagers who were busted for car theft and honestly, teenage rapists and murderers the same. And and they're not. I mean, every case, is for different. instance, mm -hmm. even a, even a teenager who gets involved in gangs and does something horrific it's a different circumstance. You know, they're, they've, there's kind of an agreement between gang members that we, this is how we live and this is what we do. And, and it's a choice. Whereas, um, and then to, to um, continue with that thought, I believe that they can change in time, mm -hmm. you know, with, with um, education and, and people that are actually interested in how they're doing, I believe that they can change. But somebody who kills for fun, which is, you know, their whole thing was we finally got sick of torturing animals and wanted to see how it would be to kill somebody. That's a different mind. That's that's yeah. not somebody making a mistake. That's mm -hmm. somebody intentionally doing something cruel right. and mm -hmm. carrying it out on somebody that trusts them. And I just don't think that treating all killers the same is to me that's insane no i think making it so that they're eligible is one thing but taking taking that the right for a judge to decide whether or not they should be tried as an adult i think it's going to have catastrophic effects i believe so yeah mm -hmm. if somebody doesn't have empathy at 14 or 15 obviously they're torturing animals shows a lack of empathy mm -hmm. you can't develop that in jail i mean you're not going to develop that kind of empathy and, and feeling and remorse and i don't believe it's possible i don't think so I right really don't. i think we need a whole new different juvenile justice system because it's not set up for violent offenders like these guys and so i can understand you know when you have this kind of violence treating them as adults but they're still not adults. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that they need some other, um, and, and I'm not saying that they should be, you know, let out once they're, they're adults. I don't feel that way at all, especially when, like you said, they're willfully took a, a life just for the fun of it. Yeah. I don't believe someone like that can be rehabilitated, but I think we need to try. And maybe, you know, maybe at 21 or whatever age, then transfer them to an adult prison 
for the rest of their sentence. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what the answers are either, but letting them out is not I don't think answer. anyone does. Yeah, letting you know? them out. I don't think anyone good. does. Yeah. I think that they just, um, I feel like um, the, the senators in this state were just really quick to get on a bandwagon of um, of reforming the justice system. So it's like they go, I mean, I'm sure you guys all know it. Historically, it's like you're either way too tough and very unfair or swing all the way to the other side instead of meeting somewhere in the middle. Mm -hmm. It would be logical to look at each case and not just each case, but how they've done while they're in prison and whether or not they were actively um, seeking therapy and taking all of the things that were offered to them and then maybe sending them before a panel of experts, not just people who are on the parole board, but actual experts who can say whether or not they think that this person is um, less of a threat. Because yeah, I would never say that they would never be a threat, somebody doing something like that. I yeah. just don't believe it. But, you know, maybe they can give some kind of, you know, a category as to what kind of threat they felt like they would be rather than just, well, he served 10 or 13 years. See ya. Yeah. 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 And he's not even going to be on parole when he gets out. Oh. Wow. And this is going to be off of his record. Wow. So even though it'll still be accessible on the internet, mm -hmm. his adult record, um, there'll be, you know, when he applies for a job and they do a background check, first degree murder is not going to pop up. That's um, insane to that me. That is completely insane. Yeah. I, I, I think someone like that should be chipped. <laughs> you should be able to monitor yeah. where they are every day, yeah. every second of the day. I mean, we Just, do it. Yeah. They, they make registered sex offenders yeah. wear a GPS. Mm -hmm. They... They make drug offenders register, mm -hmm. at least in this state, right. somebody who has been convicted of, you know, a drug related crime, they have to register. But a, somebody convicted of first degree murder is that's crazy free to just wander around. No. So his his record was expunged because he was a juvenile. It'll be it, sealed. It'll be sealed. OK. Mm -hmm. Wow. How, yeah. How did crazy. you. How did you feel like uh, police and, and the justice system treated you as a victim's family? Um, so I would say for the most part, they were very kind and, and caring. Um, the part that's difficult is the justice system as a whole. It's, um, for instance, whether you're a victim or whether you're a criminal, you go into the same area. You know, you 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 go through metal detectors, you're searched, and then the waiting area before you get into court, you know, we were sitting 12 feet from some of their family members sometime. And they would be laughing and, and having, you know, like they're in line at the movie theater while we're sitting there just trying to keep it together. And I think that that's just, it seems like a small part to other people, but it would have it would have gone a long way to allow us to be in a separate area. You know, and I think 
the police in this instant were amazing with the way that they treated Randy Thompson and Jay Williams. Cause we got to see the police interview and I felt like they were very careful. It wasn't like they were taken someplace and browbeated until they confessed. It just with Jay Williams, it happened very quick with very little pressure. Yeah, there's such a big difference in how interrogations are handled. You know, yeah. there are some that do browbeat and mm-hmm. and intimidate uh, the suspects, and then there are others who treat them with respect and right, and still get the confession that they need. You right, know, you get right, Gary. You know, it, it jeopardizes any conviction. It police yeah. don't do it right, so. That's so true. Yeah. That's so true. And and when you're, you know, you've lost a loved one like that, you want them to cross every T and dot every I. You don't want anything to come back on appeal. Besides the fact you want to make sure that it's actually the right person. You know, there's no satisfaction in just getting someone. You want it to actually Thank be the you. person that did it. Right. Thank you, Carrie. Because so it meant a lot to have the DNA evidence and the writings and the people that they had confessed to. And there was a lot of evidence to back it up rather than just um, getting two young people who maybe weren't very smart and and didn't have family support and then to be treated badly so that they would confess. That just wasn't the case. I'm so glad to hear you say that because, you know, so many times, like um, Ellen and I are both um, really involved in wrongful convictions. Mm-hmm. And I've always thought that I would feel the way that you just said, that if someone that I loved was murdered, I would want the right person yes. in prison and not just a body. Right. Um, so, and you know, I right. I think most people feel that way. I can't believe yet, anybody would anybody would feel, oh, you know, that that's fine. Just have somebody in there. That doesn't even make sense to me. I feel like when it comes to that, it's it, maybe it's cases where it's the actual justice system that wants that. Yeah. Because when you're the when when the victim is somebody that you love, there's no justice in the wrong person being Besides the fact that one of the things that we hold on to is the hope that they won't do the same thing to another family. Mm -hmm. Well, if they if the wrong person suffers for it, you have that there's another victim because there's somebody in prison that didn't do it. Right. And then the person that did is free to do whatever they want to. Right. Right. That I, I think so many families, because of dealing with grief, they really hold on to the fact that the police and prosecutors got the right person. Yeah. And so it's hard to because, you know, you're going to have to go through relive everything mm-hmm. all over again. If you find out that it, the wrong person was incarcerated and now you have to relive everything that you went through. Trying to get and then it makes you wonder, was well, this the right one if they got the wrong one the yeah. last time? So I think uh, that's why a lot of victims, families fight against the uh, You know, for me. Um, the, you know, a lot of these cases that, that Ellen and I are aware of, there wasn't the DNA testing when mm-hmm. these crimes happened that there is today. And with 
to have prosecutors fight against testing the DNA, I don't get it. If you're right, it's going to prove it that you're right. And if you're wrong, then you can go after the right person who did it. Yeah, that seems like a red flag right there. Yeah. Not okay. wanting DNA testing, big red flag. When we found out that there was actual DNA that, that linked both of them to the clothing that they were wearing and to the weapons, mm-hmm. it's um, because even though it was just two days where we didn't know that there was an arrest, those were a long two days. I remember finding myself in the grocery store and my thought is, did this person do it? Did that person do it? Could that person know something about it? Are they hiding something? And there's so many thoughts that go through your head because when you don't know, it can be anyone and everyone. Right. So, but you don't want it to be the wrong person. That would be that would be absolutely horrifying mm-hmm. to find out later that they just picked up some guy off the street and and nailed that person. Right. And that's why, yeah, I, I thought about that from uh, victims and victims' families' perspectives, that maybe the investigation is more important or, than the actual conviction because you just want to know what happened. You want to be able yeah. to... To put that together in, in your head. Mm-hmm. And you want yeah. it to be the truth mm-hmm. because your brain will fill in the gaps. You know, exactly. if you don't know what happened, that's why I sat through, there was three trials and I sat through as much as I possibly could because not knowing what happened. I mean, even though, of course, I knew what the, what the cause of death was, but mm-hmm. I didn't know what happened. Right. And... I felt like I needed to. And when and when the investigation is faulty or people are dishonest, that's not for the victims' families. Exactly. And in Denmark, there's a very high standard for when you can charge someone also for murder. But still, I think that so a lot of victims' families don't get convictions. But... They just want the police to keep investigating, not necessarily mm-hmm. only to find the person who did it, but to find out as much as they can. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes it may be a crime is random and you won't be able to find the person who did it. But just to know that police uh, cares enough to find out as much as they can. Yeah. You know, did they talk to everybody? Did, and even if they have DNA... It must be, uh, like you said, a relief to know that they also talked to people, that they also documented a lot of other things, even though it might not have been necessary to to convict, but just to find out. I totally agree. It, It needs to be a very high standard. And I realize that in every case, in in some cases it's circumstantial, but when when um we're talking about people's lives or we're even the amount of time that they're going to spend in prison, you don't want, you don't want a shoddy investigation that just, besides the fact that it's the sloppiness of it, it seems like a lack of caring, but because at least speaking for myself, it's very important that it's the right person. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've always felt that way before, before our lives were ever touched by violence. Um, I was studying administration of justice and I always 
Um, I used to be pro-death penalty, and I always wanted to make sure that it was the highest standard, the absolute highest standard. Mm -hmm. Because we're dealing with people's lives. Are you dealing with somebody who's going to spend 10 years in prison? And I can't imagine spending any amount of of time in prison for a crime you didn't commit. So you said you had to sit through the trial to to learn what happened. Is there any mechanism for victims' families to, you know, for police to tell them what they know? Or is the trial the most information you will get? It's definitely the most information. Um, I did talk to the prosecutor several times. And so they, I mean, they told me a lot. But I feel like, especially since we got to know her very well before the trial, I honestly feel like she was not comfortable sharing certain details because of knowing how traumatic it was going to be. So and then also, I maybe even for the sake of going to trial, you just don't want to let out that much information because they don't know who we're going to talk to. So um, but with each trial, I felt like I learned a little bit more and each one was more traumatic because you think, okay. I know everything there is to know. I'm, I'm going to brace myself for, for this. And then there's always a little more. Carrie, I'm really glad to hear you speak about a good investigation because we hear about so many bad investigations where people are wrongfully uh, convicted. And it's we need to know that there are police officers out there that are doing the job mm-hmm. in their own supposed to do well the thing is you don't hear about those kind of things you don't hear about them right so that's i want to thank you for bringing that into this because you know we do um ellen and i are more um, involved in the the wrongful convictions so we Mm -hmm. hear about a lot of the mistakes made and a lot of the pressure that are put on people to to lie and you know Police officers are allowed to lie when they're interrogating someone. They're allowed right. to lie to them. And a lot of times, you know, there's catastrophic um, outcomes. Okay. But it's good to know. We do need to know that there probably are more that are doing their jobs the right way. Right. And getting confessions and getting convictions that are, are good. Mm-hmm. Because right. there are bad people out there. There really are. Right. Um, not, you know, I I get so immersed in the Innocence Project and the the people that are wrongly wrongfully convicted that I do need that reminder that there are good ones out right. there. So thank you. And it's easy being on the other side of it too to think to think that the wrongful conviction aspect is you know BS. Um, it's easy to kind of um, have a one-sided view or because I've, I've had a front row seat into the horrific aspect of, of um, the darkness human beings can commit on each other. And it's really easy to hear about a case and think, Oh, innocent, you know, it just sounds like a bunch of crap. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think part of it is because you'd really hope that that wouldn't happen to people. And I realized that that hoping that it wouldn't happen is not very helpful when it comes to wrongful convictions. Mm -hmm. 
But um, before I before I was ever even in court, I I always thought that people would do their best to make sure that the person they were going after was really the person that did it because the idea of someone besides the fact that being accused is horrible, but the idea that somebody would actually spend time, you know, for a crime they didn't commit. is just so horrible. Mm -hmm. It's, it's hard to imagine the kind of person that would be okay with that. You know, the kind of officer that would know that it was the wrong person, but for numbers or for their own sick reasons, don't care. Right. To me, it seems like it would almost be like a cover up. Like they actually know who did it, but they're just putting someone in place just because they don't want that person or themselves to be convicted. Cause why else would you, it just doesn't make sense. Like, why do you want an innocent person in place? I don't know. But I think that um, sometimes like in, in, in this case, it seems like they knew who did it pretty yeah. Soon, and they had a lot of evidence, but they still bothered to gather all the evidence. Mm-hmm. They did, and, and and I think that's very important because there will be many cases where uh, police have the right person and they know he's guilty or she, but they should still spend the time right to know what happened, not just to say okay, he killed her or he killed him. End of story. Right. It's still good, that even if someone confesses, to still go out and investigate. It's not all about the conviction. It's all about finding out what happened. Right. I think that would matter also, too. And in this case, um, they started getting phone calls right away because after they did it, they went back to Randy Thompson's house. And Randy Thompson's sister had a friend spending the night at the house. So... When they came back from killing Michael, they brought the they brought the hoodies that they were wearing and they had the knives inside of the hoodies and they wedged it under the dad's truck out front. So when a brother that didn't live at the house came by, he saw the sweaters under there and he's picked it up and he brought it in the house. So he's he's holding it kind of like this. And he's like, who left their sweaters? Who left this outside? And as he's holding it, He's feeling that it kind of it's kind of heavy and there's like clanking going on in there. So the family was there about to have dinner in front of the entire family and this girl from school. He reaches into the hoodie and pulls out a eight inch butcher knife that is bent almost in half. And that's when everybody realizes that something horrible has happened well, Randy Thompson lied to his mother and said that Jay Williams had a psycho moment and they sent Jay Williams on his way and the family continued and ate their dinner. Well, the girl that was spending the night, the next day when she went to school, she I, she talked to investigators. I don't know if she called them or if, they, if she just spoke to them. She talked to investigators and then that's when not only did they have her um, verifying everything that happened, but then they had the other students and they had a teacher who had, um, found these horrible drawings in, I think it was Randy Thompson's on his schoolwork, little stick figures killing each other and burning crosses and all this stuff. And, um, and then they had testimony from kids who had seen them bring a dead 
rabbit to school in a backpack because they had been torturing rabbits and cats. They brought it to school in a backpack. So right away, there was not just the DNA evidence and the written evidence, but there was testimony from all these different kids at school that had seen this sick stuff that they were doing. And Randy Thompson in his phone had a picture of himself with a a cat that had been, uh, I guess you guys can edit this out if it's too sick, a cat that had been set on fire and had its um, legs cut off. Mm. He had a picture holding that thing up next to him with a huge smile on his face. Um, Harry, we so all have it's cats. Been, so. Yeah, we all have it's cats. Been, I can tell you it's been mm. not just what happened to Michael, absolutely horrifying, but anytime, because I'm an animal lover, so anytime I see cats, um, I remember the, the look on... <sighs> I remember the expression on that. It, it, it was deceased, but I remember what that poor cat looked like and this wild-eyed expression in Randy Thompson's face with this huge smile. Like, see, I don't like you're you holding. You can't fix somebody I, like that. I don't, that's crazy. Yeah. And it would have, for myself, I, I don't know if I would have even thought about the animal torture because it's easy to, to not believe it because mm-hmm. there was nothing, you know, there was nothing that made it real until I saw that picture. And wow. I've never been able to get that out of my head. I bet. Just yeah. the saddest. So when I read my victim's impact statement, thinking in the beginning that, you know, what we said actually mattered and the in the court system that they would take it into a, a f- account during the sentencing. Um, I had brought up that poor mangled cat and how, how sad. And then I think about him being released and the possibility that he could do that to somebody else, but mm-hmm. also any innocent little creature that he can get his hands on Right. is not safe. Terrible. And did you, did you, did anyone tell you why you should make the uh, impact statement? Or so you said you had, you thought that maybe it would have an impact. Well, I understand. Now, now I've come to realize that the whole reason that they do that is kind of like, they think it's therapeutic to, to families to be able to say what they have to say. Mm -hmm. And, um, I can say there's a small amount of, of satisfaction to, to be able to stand there and tell the defendant what I think about him. But, um, in the beginning, I actually did think that I thought that um, it mattered during sentencing. I can kind of see why it doesn't now because they the sentencing has to be based purely on the law and what they're convicted of. But going into it, you you actually think that the judge is going to hear hear your side and maybe maybe some of it will come into play when it comes to the amount of time they're sentenced to to mm-hmm. to realize the kind of um, trauma that they've put the families through. But um, it's more like it's just a procedure. It's 
therapeutic. It's seen, seen as closure and, and it's not. No, no. And it would be nice to know, you know, ahead. If, if someone tells the victim's family, you're making this statement as part of the whole thing. Right. And, and this is the reason that it's not going to impact any sense. Because, yeah, I, that must be a terrible feeling to think that. It oh, is. Yeah. To realize okay. that they, the, um, the sentence was already decided exactly. at that point. Mm. Yeah. And, and I, I thought, I thought too that there was a, a real point to have that impact statement before the sentencing. But right. The one good part is it becomes part of the record. So when they go before a parole board, it can come up. And, um, you know, if I'm not alive anymore, when, when the second one comes up for parole, my statement is part of that. And so I didn't realize this, but when I wrote my impact statement, I was very detailed with what they did because I felt like it was important to make a point that vital organs were hit and that um, something was done to him to make it to make sure that he was not going to get back up. And I felt like that needed to be emphasized. And I felt like his defense wounds on his hands needed to be emphasized because it's easy to um, depersonalize it. But when you realize that somebody's got stab imprints on their hands and cuts on their fingers, that the first wound did not kill him. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of what we kind of thought that, well, it was probably over very quickly. But when you realize somebody's got defensive wounds all over their hands, obviously it, it wasn't quick enough to keep them from fighting. And I felt like that was important. Um, so that if, you know, in 20 years, people um, aren't thinking about that anymore and they go before the parole board, I thought it's important for them to remember that um, the victim did suffer. Mm-hmm. That's a good point because the parole board can consider statements made by victim's family. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Please check back next week for part two. And if you haven't already, please be sure to subscribe so you don't miss when new episodes are released and follow us on all social media platforms at Touched by Crime to stay up to date. Thank you and we hope to see you again next week.